Hey, Patrick. Good afternoon, Ruth Tam. <laughs> uh, you've never seen Game of Thrones, right? No, I've seen like an episode and a half of Game of Thrones. Maybe two, if, if I'm being generous. I mean, I don't blame you. But the fact is, I watched all seven seasons and I'm kind of like delighted at the idea of asking someone who's never seen Game of Thrones a basic question about Game of Thrones. Yes, hit me. I want to ask me the question. That's what we do on this show. What do you make of the show's iconic phrase, winter is coming? Like, what does it mean? It it literally to me is just like the meme with the guy from Lord of the Rings who plays Boromir. <laughs> like that's that's my association. It's good old Sean Bean, Boromir in a fur. What a guy. Okay, well, in Game of Thrones, the main protagonists are the Stark family. They're a family that lives in the harsh northern region, and their family motto, or what they call their words, are winter is coming. And this phrase that they use all the time has this vibe of an ominous warning, but they basically say it the way that people say, yep, or fair enough. (laughs) Winter is coming. Winter is coming for him. And winter is coming. Winter is coming. Winter is coming. And winter is coming. Winter is coming. (laughs) (laughs) So this phrase is so popular that pop culture and news sites have taken it and used it to very literally describe any situation that involves winter. And basically these days it means the situation that restaurants are facing today. Because even though local restaurants have been able to take advantage of phase two dining opportunities and they've built up outdoor eating spaces on sidewalks and streets known very unfortunately to me as streeteries, the fact is Outdoor dining won't be able to last through the coldest weather of the year. Right, because unfortunately, in the real world, winter is actually on the way. Here's the thing, though. In Game of Thrones, winter is coming is not just a weather forecast. It's a mindset. When the Stark family says winter is coming, they really mean be prepared, stay vigilant, keep your family close and protect your own. Because winter, and honestly, death come for us all. Wow, that's pretty bleak. Um, It sounds like you can compare the pandemic to winters in Game of Thrones then. Like, some people saw this coming and tried to warn us, and we all reacted differently. And when it got bad, we were like, oh, what are we supposed to do? In the real world, uh, we think of the endpoint of the pandemic as the development of a vaccine. But that doesn't mean everyone will have access to it or that the disease will be eradicated. Who knows when that'll happen? Yeah, it kind of feels like restaurants are out here doing all of this work and screaming for help, but a lot of people aren't listening because the problem facing them right now is just too big to comprehend. Kind of like a White Walker apocalypse. I, what is that? Is this another Game of Thrones thing? Unfortunately, yes. This is Dish City. I'm Ruth Tam. And I'm Patrick Fort. On this episode, restaurants are bracing for a cold, harsh season. What are they going to do to survive? And what part of this can they actually control? We're getting into it because winter is, well, you know. (laughs) 
So in Game of Thrones, the thing about winter on this show is it lasts for years. There's no set timeline that seasons follow, so winter or summer can last for an arbitrarily long amount of time. And while we typically know how long winter lasts in the real world, we can't really forecast what it's going to be like this year, especially when you think about how restaurants are going to be affected during this pandemic. Will indoor dining be enough to flow businesses for a couple of months? Will people who are dining out right now start going hard on takeout? We don't know what the winter months are going to hold for us. And so anything that we can do for ourselves right now is essential. Patrice Clary is the chef owner of Purple Patch, a Filipino restaurant in Mount Pleasant. At the start of this pandemic, she turned her long, narrow restaurant into a delivery hub and grocery store. And she also transformed her private event space into a butcher's market. And over the summer came the real game changer. She got permission from D.C. to open an outdoor eating area outside of her restaurant. She hustled to get as many tents on the streetery as possible, coordinating with her neighbors and the city. So now Purple Patch has 14 tents on the block. But what does that all mean for business? We had Patrice estimate how much money she makes from one tent, which can seat a maximum of six diners. Say you were able to turn that table three times. Patrice whips out her calculator to do some math for us. One tent could give you... When Purple Patch is operating at capacity, Patrice says that one tent can technically yield enough business over a month to cover her rent and condo fees. Of course, that's only if, one, the weather is perfect, and two, every single seat is filled and turned as much as possible in a day, which in COVID times is just not happening. Plus, there's still utilities and labor and food costs. But like we said, she's got 14 outdoor tents and delivery service. With these two streams of income, she's only making half of what she used to make, but she needs both to stay in business right now. She's so quick with the math when it comes to making money, but when it comes to talking about how much she's had to invest in her restaurant, she's much more hesitant. I don't want to think about what I put into it because if I actually add everything up, what I've put into it, it would probably make me sad. Patrice can't stop to add everything up that she spent on pivoting her restaurant, like all the tents and tables. It would just be too emotionally distracting. So she tends to put up these blinders around that part of work right now. Instead, she's approached survival with this all-in strategy. That means focusing on how much money each table and each modification brings in so that she can stay open another week. For example, to prepare her new outdoor eating area for the cold, she bought 11 heaters. Price gougers had raised the cost nearly 60% higher than normal. And these purchases came out of her savings, which is also hard to think about. So you're looking at probably like $30,000 that I've spent in my own savings. But that $30,000 has now allowed us to stay open since March. I wouldn't have had a butcher shop. I wouldn't have been able to bring in extra revenue from that. I wouldn't have been able to hire two more people for the butcher shop. The upstairs, we wouldn't have had reach-ins where, you know, those refrigerators are huge. Those frosé machines are huge. Those bring in, you know, a, a big chunk of of the money that we make daily. So I had to see the value in it. She's had to change her business around so many times to look for new revenue streams, invest in new equipment, all while trying to keep up with changing government guidelines. 
Each week, there was a new pivot to make, new things to prepare for. And after eight months of operating in pandemic mode, she feels helpless. Patrice is not alone. Restaurants are facing the long winter of this pandemic, where local restaurant owners are stuck in this weird limbo of having to plan for the long term, but also hustle in the moment. They're trying to make as much money as possible during their current pivot and prepare for the next one. I think that this winter is going to be atrocious. You know, small business owners are living in a hellscape right now. That's Julie Verratti. She's the co-founder of Denizens Brewing, and they've got two locations, one in Silver Spring and the other in Riverdale Park. I mean, we're doing what we can to make it a fall festive sort of feel. Um, Both of our locations, we've basically turned into pumpkin patches. So we actually drove out to uh, Poolsville last week at like seven in the morning um, and grabbed 50 bales of straw and like three or 400 pumpkins and then set all that stuff up. It sort of creates this fun sort of feel and vibe. And, uh, you know, we're encouraging people to do a BYOB. So bring your own blanket this fall. Julie figured out a plan for fall, but it's not going to last for forever. We got to be realistic, though. I mean, at some point, <laughs> and I don't know if it's going to be before Thanksgiving, after Thanksgiving, uh, it's going to be too cold for people to be sitting outside. I mean, that's that's just a fact. We're going to try to stay open outside as long as we can. But at some point, I think we're probably going to have to pivot to just doing home deliveries and um, focusing on wholesale and then also doing pickup. Um, at both of our tap rooms for food and booze. Um, I just don't necessarily know what day that's going to be. And that's one of the biggest issues is it's hard to plan. Because what if we have a mild winter and we shut down the outdoors? Like, what? you know, you never know if it's the right decision or not. Julie's been doing a lot of the same things as Patrice, working around constantly changing restrictions, dealing with price gouging, and even a worldwide shortage of beer cans. But now that winter is coming, the idea of another pivot seems daunting. Without more aid, can they survive on their efforts alone? Listen, I know how stressful of a time this is. John Falcicchio is the deputy mayor of D.C. He's in charge of the grant programs for district businesses like Purple Patch. It's uh, not just stressful for those business owners, uh, but it's also stressful for uh, myself and my team that work on developing these programs to support them. Uh, And so the frustration is not uh, something that goes unheard. D.C. offered grants at the start of this pandemic. And using money they got from Congress's stimulus package, the CARES Act, the district has since offered other small to medium-sized grants targeting different kinds of businesses. Patrice has received grants and loans from D.C. and the federal government. And when we talked to her, she had just been offered another grant specifically aimed at prepping for winter. But the terms of the grant were frustrating. You couldn't use the money to pay for things you had already purchased. Things like the overpriced heaters Patrice bought in August. And she was angry. This is what I'm doing to survive. But now I've been told by the government that anything that we have bought pre-grant, we can't use the grant money for. On one hand, it makes sense that grant money has conditions. But on the other, there's the reality that not everyone who needs help will get it. There's not just the requirement that you use the money to pay for things you haven't already purchased. For example, restaurants without outdoor space can't apply for this grant to help them get through the winter. And there are restaurateurs who don't qualify for any grants at all because they opened during the pandemic. And D.C. requires grant applicants to be profitable pre-coronavirus. Given all the different kinds of restaurants there are, the grants available don't necessarily meet everyone's needs. Here's John Falcicchio, D.C.'s deputy mayor. 
what we try to do is we try to let people know uh, exactly what we can do, uh, how we plan to implement it, and then uh, go out and implement it uh, in the most efficient way possible. And so definitely understand that frustration because we understand uh, the tremendous amount of stress that our business owners are under. In total, Patrice from Purple Patch has received about $175,000 in grants and loans from the federal government and the district. And that's great. But the thing is, the pandemic is still happening. We don't know when this long winter will end. And according to Julie from Denizens Brewing, the aid can't stop. Two and a half months worth of financial help during an 18-month to two-year-long pandemic is just not enough. There needs to be more done. Up and down from the federal to the state to the local, uh, I think everybody needs to be doing more. Um, Because if you think about it, if the government allows small businesses to die, which is what will happen, um, you've basically completely eviscerated the entire economy because most jobs in the private sector are with small businesses. You know, add them all up together. If they, if they don't survive, you're basically going to be putting millions and millions and millions and millions of more people onto government assistance roles, and yet you've just eradicated your entire tax base. While Patrice in D.C. has received grants from both local and federal governments, Julie in Silver Spring has only seen federal money come through. We haven't gotten anything from the state or the county, uh, which has been really frustrating. In March, they said that we didn't qualify for the $10,000 grant funds because we, quote, made too much money in the month of March. Well, we weren't even successful. We were literally like 40% down from what we would have been at. And they still thought that was, oh, that's too much. When you have folks working in government who don't necessarily know what it's like to like meet a payroll or have bills that have to be paid no matter what, or like you personally have consequences, uh, I just wish there was more empathy and more sympathy going on. Of course, there are people in local government who manage payroll and pay bills, but Julie's saying it's different when the money in question is the difference between your entire way of life continuing or coming to an end. If Julie was turned down because her business didn't meet the criteria of need, that suggests other restaurants needed it more. But doesn't that also mean that people in government are making really hard choices? When you're thinking about public policy and how it's going to have the best use of funds for folks, um, you know, businesses right now who are operating at 10 to 20 percent revenue of what they would normally be. This is, you know, some of my colleagues that don't have the outdoor space that we have. I don't know how they're going to be able to make it, you know. And so if you're if you're the government using tax dollars and you're only giving funds to businesses that are operating at 10 to 20 percent revenue, and you're not helping the businesses that are operating at 60 or 70% revenue. Is that help actually going to keep those businesses alive? Whereas if you gave it to the businesses that are operating at, you know, 50% and above, maybe they will make it out on the other side, if that makes sense. Just in terms of best use of public dollars. I get what she's saying, but it comes across as kind of harsh. You generally think of government assistance going towards people who need it, you know, the most. I'm not saying that in terms of that's what I wish that the government would do. I, I think there needs to not be any means testing right now. 
The way Julie sees it, Maryland and other local governments are means testing, which is to say that they're requiring people to prove their need before they get assistance. When to Julie, everyone needs assistance right now. There should just be a default. Everyone is getting screwed by COVID right now financially. And just know that. Don't make businesses have to apply for things and show their numbers. And you can always claw it back in the future. You can have them pay back some of the funds, sure. But right now is not the time for means testing. All the work these restaurants did over the summer will be meaningless if they can't survive the winter. And all of that aid will have been for nothing. But there's just not enough money for everyone that needs it. Congress hasn't been able to pass a second stimulus bill, and the election only made negotiations harder. That puts local government in the position of deciding who gets what with the money that's left over from the CARES Act. At the start of the pandemic, states like Maryland and Virginia got at least $1.25 billion in federal aid. But D.C. got the amount set aside for territories, only $500 million. So when it comes to providing aid for hard-hit sectors like the restaurant industry, there's just not enough money for everyone. And that means picking winners and losers. Here's how Deputy Mayor John Falcicchio sees that responsibility. Because we're impacted as well, uh, there is a bit of a limit on what uh, we can do in terms of supporting them financially. Uh, but in terms of how they interact with the government, we want to make sure that is uh, as uh, simple as possible, um, you know, so that they can weather this pandemic. It almost feels like applying for grants is like being trapped in a maze where it's like, yes, there's some money available, but finding your way through the bureaucracy to get it is a burden on top of everything else that's going on. And honestly, in the grand scheme of things, once you get it, like six or $10,000, it's not really going to be enough to bail you out. But that's not deterring Patrice. And that's where I had to pull my big girl pants up and say, stop whining about free money, Patrice. It's freaking free and other people aren't getting it. So do it. When we spoke with her, Patrice was trying to figure out how to get that winter grant money to pay for the things she needed. And she was in the process of applying for another grant, D.C.'s Small Business Resiliency Fund, which would make her eligible for up to $10,000. I asked Patrice what that money would mean to her. I could, I could really take that question and turn it around and be like angry and say it shows how much we're worth because they don't care about us. But I'm an immigrant I was born in the Philippines. I came here in the early 70s. Um, my mom didn't have anything. Like we set up a, a table and sold goods off of a table. And to see where I came from and to where I'm at now, and the fact that people actually wanna give me money to continue fighting, I have to see the good in that. I can't see it as, it's only $10,000 and I'm only worth $10,000. I have to see it as, man, thank you for giving me $10,000 to survive another day. For Julie at Denizens, this also feels deeply personal, but she can't feel grateful to local governments right now because Julie still hasn't received any aid from Montgomery County or Maryland. You put everything you own on the line when you open your doors. We didn't come from a ton of money. We had to borrow all the funds in order to, you know, build and grow and expand our business. You know, my house is collateral for that. So if Denizens fails and I can't meet my, you know, loan payments, 
not only do I lose my entire livelihood, but I lose everything I own. I lose my house. So when I say like there's going to be people who will have to go on government assistance, I'm talking about myself. I'm one of those people. Julie is focusing on the next pivot, bracing herself for a day when it's too cold to serve beer outside and she'll have to shut her beer garden down and focus on takeaway business and home deliveries. Patrice is trying to make the money she has pay for what she needs, and she's got to make that winterizing grant money work for her, despite all of its restrictions. She needs all the money she put into surviving the pandemic to pay off. We're basically going to spend this winter wondering what it's going to take to save the restaurants we love, and if we even have the money to do that. It feels like businesses are going to live or die by this winter, so every grant application, tent permit, and heater purchase counts, and yet also feels overwhelming. Every move feels so consequential, and success so arbitrary. Everyone wants more help, but there will probably never be enough. This episode of Dish City was produced by me, Patrick Ford. And me, Ruth Tam. Our managing producer is Ponsi Rutch, and Mike Kidd mixed this show. Monica Ashvi is WAMU's chief content officer and oversees everything we make here. Share your ideas for episodes with us via email at dishcity at wamu.org. We're also on Twitter and Instagram at dishcity. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to our show and write a review wherever you get your podcasts. See ya.